Welcome to Beyond Letters, a Heinemann podcast featuring LGBTQ plus educators, their stories, strategies, and practical advice for creating safe and inclusive educational spaces for queer youth and educators alike. If this is your first time listening, we invite you to go back and listen to our preview episode. I am Maggie Beatty Roberts. And I'm Kate Roberts. And welcome to the podcast. Uh, If you've been listening to this series, you know that we like to start by thinking about why we are doing this podcast. I was thinking, like, one reason we are doing this podcast is I remember an undergraduate, the University of Illinois, taking a new course Mm -hmm. offering in college, and it was a queer theory class. And I was so excited and energized and pumped. And the discussions were incredible. It was my senior year of undergrad. I was about to go into the Chicago public schools and start teaching. And I just took notebooks of notebooks of notes in that class and developed lifelong friendships. And then I walked into the classroom as a 22-year-old teacher of eighth grade students. And there was only 12 students, Kate. Like I don't know if you know that, but there was like 12 students that I had my first year as a teacher. And I was lucky enough to have this out lesbian couple in my class. Your students were? Yes. Wow. And I had no idea how to support them besides like smiling and getting really like happy with my face and hands, thumbs up, like go for it. And I had all these pages of notes of things I could do. And uh, I couldn't make the translation into the classroom. And I feel like that's why I'm so excited to have Mm -hmm. our guest today. Let's introduce Cody Mm -hmm. Miller. Cody is a high school English teacher, soon to be assistant professor of English ed at uh, SUNY Brockport, an award-winning teacher and uh, holds some wonderful positions at NCTE. I want to say hi, Cody. Hello. How's it going? Cody, it's so nice to have you here on the podcast today. There's so much I want to know. Like, I want to start with the Teaching Tolerance Award. Mm -hmm. I want to start with your work in the high school. But I feel like maybe we could begin our conversation. You know, for me, that that moment as being a first-year eighth grade teacher, like, that was a turning point for me, I think, as an educator. And I would just be curious if you had any critical moments like those that were a turning point for you into helping you become the educator that you are today? Yeah. So one moment that really stands out to me, and I I think about this often, actually, was in high school. So I am from um, Florida, but I'm from North Central Florida, which is both culturally and socially more akin to like Southern Georgia and Alabama than it is kind of, you know, when people think of Florida, they think of like beaches and Disney, but but not that part of Florida. And um, I was in high school. Um, I'm a, a, a queer person. I was not out in high school. And it was the height of the George W. Bush reelection campaign. And George W. Bush was campaigning on what was then called a federal marriage amendment, uh, which would have defined marriage as between a man and a woman in the United States Constitution. And Obviously, it, you know, it eventually failed shortly after um, he was reelected. But I'll never forget that 
in my whole entire high school experience, the only time we ever, ever, ever brought up any issue remotely related to LGBTQ people was the fact that the federal marriage amendment was being campaigned on. And it wasn't necessarily a debate in class. It was just mentioned and and that was it. And I too took some courses that focused on queer experiences in undergrad. And I just often think about how, what that meant to me as a person that the only time I ever heard, you know, five seconds of something related to LGBTQ people was around an issue in which a very powerful political figure was trying to do harm to LGBTQ people. So I think about what that said about where LGBTQ people belong in curriculum. And in my own experiences, it made me feel as though they didn't belong, right? Or if they did, they're only going to be talked about as something debatable, right? Should this amendment pass or not? And that was very different from being in undergrad courses where you were reading queer experiences and talking about being queer. And I think that it's really unfortunate that still today in in 2019, so many students, LGBTQ students, don't get to learn about LGBTQ topics and narratives until they're in undergrad. And that's obviously a really privileged position, right? Not everyone attends college. And I just think that's truly a disservice to students and it's also harmful. So that was that was my one experience. My second experience was last year at the end of my six year teaching for Teacher Appreciation Week. One of my good friends who's a colleague had students write a letter to any teacher they had just saying, like, here's something you did that was important to me. And I received so many letters from out queer kids just saying, you know, kind of simply thanks for being an out teacher. And it does give me a sense of I'm not an optimist by nature, right? But it does give me some kind of hope that students are experiencing, queer students are experiencing a different high school experience than I did. That phrase you said of like, that anytime people hear things about LGBTQ people, it's something debatable is so intense. Like back when I was in high school, it wasn't even debatable. It's like, if there was a queer character in something, they were definitely evil and going to die. Do you know what I mean? Like the only narrative that we saw growing up was that there was something really awful about um, queer people. And like, to think again, that like, I'm also not an optimist by nature, (laughs) but that that probably has changed for a lot of kids. But at the same time, there are places, right, that we go to where that's not that different right? Or at least there's not enough uh, representation. Yeah, absolutely. And the school that I'm finishing up my final year teaching, I've been there for six years, and I'm in a part of Florida that is, um, it's a university town, but the surrounding areas are pretty rural. Um, The town I grew up in is only about an hour away from, from where I teach now. And I'll do work sometimes, professional development with teachers and that come from these rural schools. And, you know, we'll talk about the landscape and how it might be difficult. And, you know, I always say I was that rural queer kid, right? Like I needed a teacher like you and I didn't have that. And so what you're doing is powerful, right? It's not abstract. It's real. I think also important to note that, you know, queer people exist in rural areas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can take a picture of the town that I grew up in, (laughs) in, in like not even a new smartphone camera, like an old school cell phone camera. I grew up in a village of 350 people. So yeah, just speaking to the rural kind of queer experience is there's just, there's just not one way to be right. In, in our community, there are so many, prism point you know like it's it's a prism in terms of how many experiences there are 
you have this, um, you were quoted saying that when, when you teach, that you believe that curriculum is a living, breathing entity and, you know, the importance of knowing your kids and having them reflected in the curriculum and having them have authorship over that curriculum. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I borrowed that phrase from a phrase that often um, gets talked about in legal theory, right? That the constitution is an evolving document and kind of as society evolves, our understanding of the constitution should evolve. And I think that's certainly applicable to curriculum as well, that the way we think about the world, we should be revising how we think about curriculum, right? So I think right now there are really important conversations happening around canonical texts and what does it mean? What does the canon even mean? And as we reevaluate our understanding of concepts like the canon, then we should also reevaluate our curriculum, right? It's living and breathing. But I also think when I say that comment is I want students to take the stances we develop in class and the language we use in class and apply it to any text, right? So I always love to say that everything is a text and everything can be read, right? So whether we're talking about a piece of young adult literature, a poem, an Ariana Grande song, like all of these are texts that are created in our culture. And we should, the language we use to talk about, you know, um, an Ariana Grande song is the same kind of language we can use to talk about, say, a play. And so I think it's just really important for students to think about no text existing in a vacuum. And I also am always trying to find ways for students and I to kind of co-construct our curriculum. And if, for instance, we're reading a piece and it's a teacher-selected piece and it's you know a short story about the role of family in our lives, let's say, then giving students a chance to say, what is a text from your life that addresses this theme? And um, how do those kind of texts speak to each other, right? So maybe in this piece, here's how family is constructed. Here's how we think of family. But in your favorite episode of a TV show, here's an episode that has us think about how family is constructed. And I guess to be more specific, last year, we did a unit that looked at how the social construct of teenager has changed throughout history. And we read some nonfiction pieces about when the first concept of teenager came about. Uh, And then we actually um, watched some clips from shows starting with um, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Saved by the Bell, going all the way to Degrassi, all the way to On My Block. We watched Daria. And we talked about how like this view of the teenager has changed throughout time. Then students picked a text of their own. Most of them did pick TV shows or movies and talked about here's how the construction of youth looks like. And they were co-constructing curriculum because they were picking texts that address the bigger theme. And they're also being in dialogue with the texts we read in class. That's just such an important concept to layer in with young people that, you know, we can study the construction of youth and then we can study the construction of gender and then we can study the construction of all these other labels or ways that we categorize ourselves, and it speaks to your work of transferring that work across lots of different texts uh, which feels really powerful so um as you know in our conversations we were talking about how you know one hope mag and i have for this podcast is like to really speak to educators who want to do more want to get started supporting lgbtq youth colleagues themselves in schools so if, if you were to name some things that you see that you think educators could do more of, what would be some advice you would give all of us? 
Yeah, so um, I'd like to first talk about kind of two concepts that guide my thinking here. So Jill Herman, Will Marth, and Caitlin Ryan have a piece called Doing What You Can, and it's about what can you do in classrooms to support LGBTQ students. And I really love that piece because it, it's, it's doing what you can, which recognizes the reality of your, your own context, right? But also that there is something you can do, right? Like you can do something. Um, and I think that's really important to note. Uh, and the other piece is um, Jeff Duncan Andrade and Ernest Morrill have a concept called radical pragmatism. And it's this idea that you have radical aims of restructuring what classrooms and schools look like, but you're pragmatic about it, right? So if the reality is you can only include LGBTQ books and book clubs, including that is something, right? And that pushes us a little bit closer to an equitable and just classroom than not doing that. So doing what you can in radical pragmatism are two concepts that really frame my thinking around my work as a queer educator doing queer affirming classroom uh, work. Is it okay if I just kind of give some? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Cool. I mean, I love that. I think it's like what it, what it, it's so interesting, right? As a queer educator, because I hear that and I'm like, yes. And I think that is one of the obstacles we all feel sometimes to doing something is that the thing we're trying to end or fight or transform or create seems so big. And there are so many obstacles that are out of our hands that I think it's difficult sometimes for people to feel like, I can take a first step here. Do you know what I mean? Like there is stuff I can do that I have control over that will make a big difference. For sure. And I always want to acknowledge people's, you know, the kind of legal, the kind of policy landscape they exist in. You know, I'm in Florida and we no longer have tenure protection for teachers, right? And so that does mean that if you do speak up and disrupt some homophobia, that there could be repercussions. And the last thing I want is for a, a new teacher who is fighting the good fight to lose their job, right? Because that doesn't that doesn't help anyone. And so so I, I always try to keep that at the forefront of, of my thinking. So one thing I think educators could do, and especially for non-LGBTQ educators, is really to educate themselves on LGBTQ contemporary topics in history. Because the reality is most of us who attend public schools in the United States didn't get LGBTQ history in their classrooms, right? I mean, if we're lucky, maybe we had a really great teacher. Some states now, I believe Illinois, New Jersey, and California require LGBTQ history. So that's, you know, three out of 50. So, which is a good start. (laughs) Got a while to go. More than we had two years ago. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And I will be the optimist in the room. Yes, between the three of us. We'll take it. It's good. (laughs) So I think that's really important is that one thing to do is to understand not just LGBTQ content so you you can teach it in classrooms, but also understand LGBTQ history because that's an important part of queer people's humanity, right? And so there's a lot of great podcasts that I'd, I'd like to suggest. So Teaching Tolerance has a podcast called Queer America that's really wonderful and looks at different moments, kind of flashpoints in queer history, and then, then unpacks them. And then three podcasts that talk about contemporary queer life that I really, really love Um, One is Strange Fruit, and it talks about a range of queer issues, including legal issues that are facing queer people. And it takes a sociological perspective, and I really appreciate that. Slate has a podcast called Outward that talks a lot about contemporary LGBTQ issues. So a few weeks ago, they did a really great episode that looked at queer life historically in rural spaces, right? So um, we often think of queer life and queer culture in 
big urban metropolitan spaces, but this kind of looked at the history of queer people in rural spaces. And then the last podcast is Nancy, which is a queer focused podcast. And specifically, there's one episode about LGBTQ educators, so teachers and administrators in public school systems. And I think that one's really good. So that would be the first thing for educators, especially non-LGBTQ educators, to really understand the history of LGBTQ people in this country. When you guide us to just holistically educating ourselves on the accomplishments and trials and systematic struggles or opportunities that a group of people has, it just helps take sometimes a two-dimensional view on the LGBTQ community and gives us a 4D view on it. Mm. You know, just as a classroom teacher, even with these first few tips, Cody, it's so helpful to say there are just so many angles that we could take our work. Um, And depending on where I stand as an educator, I might take a more like, let's just look at the, the legal stuff that affects this community. Or let me just permeate my classroom with lots of stories of diverse families that have all different types of family structures, or let's look at, you know, queer people in rural spaces. And and so just even in these first few tips, what I appreciate is just, I see a huge root system growing from that suggestion of different avenues that I could go down as a, as a classroom teacher. And also that focus on it's the internal work first, right? Like the idea that you know, the tip you didn't give was, hey, educators, go find your gay friend and ask them lots of questions. <laughs> right? Right, right. Go, you know, like you, there is enough out there on the internet, on podcasts, there's stuff out there to help me as a, as a white person get educated on the experience of people of color in this country. I don't need to ask my friends or my colleagues I can do that homework myself, and it actually takes a lot of emotional labor off of a queer person's shoulders if you don't ask them. Because if you ask them, they'll probably answer, right? Like, how much have we answered questions in our life that we're like, oh, okay, here we go, right? Mm-hmm. And it's fine. I'll do that work, but it's work, mm-hmm. right? And you're suggesting we can educate ourselves. Yeah, and and I, and I agree with you. I am, there's always that kind of, um, when the non-LGBTQ person ask a question, there's always that kind of first moment of like internal eye roll, right? And then you're like, okay, smile face. Here we go. Yep. Yada, yada, yada. And it's with love. It's with love. I'm like, I'm glad you're asking, but still like, okay, this is work, right? Right. No, for sure. And I appreciate my non-LGBTQ colleagues who will go and read or research or think about a book and then want to come and just talk about the topic, but not seeking me as like a resource, if that makes sense, right? Like, oh, I read this thing. It was really cool. Like, here's what I'm thinking. You know, what have you thought about it? And I'm, I'm always down with that because it's like, you've done the work first. Yeah. And it's like, it, it just positions us all to do the work together mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a single point, you know, conversation. Do you have any other suggestions or tips that we could take away from your work in the classroom? Yeah, so um, I do a lot of work with pre-service teachers. I mentor a lot of pre-service teachers when they're doing their internships. And something I always say is that you really have to always have a rationale for your work, but especially a rationale when it comes to including LGBTQ topics in classrooms. And You know, I could go on for hours about how I despise the standardized landscape that we're in, 
as I'm sure we all equally despise it, as most educators do. However, it is the landscape that we're currently in now. And if we're going to constantly be asked to validate our work with standards and and rationales, then I think we could use that language to advance the work we're doing, right? So I think that it's really important that whenever we're including LGBTQ texts and voices that we're able to say, you know, here's the kind of standards we're hitting and here's what we're doing with it. Because I also think that a lot of folks will will use standards to kind of mask their, you know, homo and, and transphobia, right? So, you know, I know of stories of teacher friends who will have administrators say, you know, why are you teaching this? You should be doing the standards, right? We got to hit these standards. And I think that my read of that is it's almost like using the standards as a, as a guy. No one wants to be seen as a homophobe, right? So instead it's like, well, you need to be doing this instead of that. And if you're able to say, well, like, here's how my work hits the standards, here's the ideas we're hitting, it provides you with like a a shield against that criticism. And one thing I really appreciate is both GLSEN's curricular material and Teaching Tolerance's curricular material always align their work with common core standards. And I think from my end, that's really intentional, right? To say, if if you get hit with someone saying, why are you doing this? What are your standards? You can say, here they are. So almost like the standards as a a shield against potential pushback. Mm -hmm. And also just like, just giving your teaching a ton of context too. Like my teaching has context with the standards. My teaching has context with empathy and humanity. My (laughs) teaching has context for the contemporary issues that our kids are living. And even just kind of like role-playing that conversation of, you know, in in a faculty lounge of, let me just talk about my lesson in terms of different frameworks feels really empowering for me as a teacher and helps me feel really grounded in those decisions that I'm making in the curriculum. Okay, Cody, I think we have time for one more suggestion. So um, if it's okay, if I talk a little about in the um, English context, if if I could talk a little. Please please do. Yes. Yes. So two things in in this kind of realm of the English context. One is um, the importance of young adult literature, uh, especially as more young adult literature is being written by and written for queer youth. So um, folks like Marcus Shiro, Sarah Farazan, Adam Silvera, just to name a few, have some really great books out. And I feel like every year there's more and more really great high quality LGBTQ young adult literature being written and, and published. And I think that one way to include that work is to include it in literature circles, right? So if you're doing a literature circle around a major theme like family, for instance, in your selection of books, you can include LGBTQ books that students can choose. And I think that's one way to also navigate some pushback, right? Is that, you know, if you're, you have an angry parent that doesn't want these included in the classroom, you can say, well, you know, your student doesn't have to, to read it. They can they can pick something else. Now, I'll say I struggle with this stance a lot because in classrooms all across this country, we require all students to read heteronormative narratives all the time. And I think what message do we send when we say LGBTQ texts will be part of literature circles and therefore a choice? But I also know, again, the political reality of schools. And if the only way we can get LGBTQ books in is through literature circles, I'd rather have them than not have them. And then the second thing is about the canon. So I get that some teachers are tied to certain texts because of, you know, standards, context, and AP courses, etc. But I also think there's ways that we can kind of queer these texts, right? So if you're reading Romeo and Juliet, 
you can offer students like a project that lets them make a text connection, right? So they can connect to a film, a movie, another book, and they can bring in texts from their own lives that center LGBTQ characters to make connections to those themes in Romeo and Juliet. And when we're thinking about the canon and the debate around the canon and canonical texts, something that I would turn teachers to to look at is the hashtag disrupt text, uh, which was a movement started by Julia Torres, Lorena Herman, Trisha Ibarvia, and Kim Parker. It's a grassroots movement that really challenges us to think about how do we disrupt this notion of the canon for racial, gender, justice, also justice for LGBTQ people. So that's a movement that I think is really important to, to think about for English teachers. Yeah, and Disrupt Text has a, a great format on Twitter, too, for the busy person in the world because they do these slow chats, right, where it's like it takes you can take it across the entire week. So you don't have to be at a Twitter chat at a certain time. You can just enter into the conversation when you want to, which is really, I think, empowering for a lot of educators. Yeah, absolutely. And um, S.J. Miller, who is a really great English ed scholar, also has some articles that talk about the importance of young adult literature and AP courses. And SJ's articles kind of talk about what that could look like. So that's another good resource too for English teachers. Thank you for that. Thank you, Cody. This is all super practical and also big, right? These little moves that we can make that can make, I think, huge differences in our kids' lives, in our teachers' lives, in our school lives, which means it's time. Do you want to say it? I think we are at time for the closing five. Hey, high fiving, high fiving. <laughs> Cody, we have a we have five questions that we like to ask all of our guests here at the podcast. <laughs> my first question to you is: You'll never see me without my oh, a worn out messenger bag. I think I want to get pictures of what everybody says and put them above the podcast so that it's like your emblematic item. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. beautiful. How long have you had this uh, messenger bag? I think the version I'm on now is four years. They normally go through four-year cycles. So, Okay. Okay. I could, I, we could do a whole podcast on messenger bags, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I am obsessed with bags. I guess like that answers... It's you'll never see me without, but at one point they're new messenger bags. So I guess at that point you can see me with a new one, not a worn out one. But all right, well currently it's your beautifully worn messenger bag. What's your favorite article of clothing? Um, it's so cliche, but a cardigan. Oh, that's so good though. Yeah, it's yes. tried and true, right? For a long time, my nickname was Old Man Super Cool because all I did was wear cardigans, and I'm always a little grumpy. Yeah. So I feel that. I feel a club forming. Old man, <laughs> Old man super, super cool. Cardigan <laughs> carrying. Cardigan wearing. Messenger bag carrying. Mm-hmm. Cody, what was your first concert? So it was Journey, but without Steve Perry. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. I think I was in like sixth grade and my parents took me to it. So yeah. So oh. without Steve Perry. <laughs> I mean, you should be proud of how sad that is. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> Tell people that they're always like, "Oh, I love Steve Perry," and I'm like, "Well, he wasn't there." He wasn't there. <laughs> Your first queer icon. So Marco from the show Degrassi: The Next Generation. Oh yeah, nice. Um, who later becomes a teacher in the show, Ooh. and the actor who plays him is in a really cheesy gay Christmas movie called Make the Yuletide Gay. 
I like everything you're saying right now. This might actually be the best thing you've offered on the <laughs> podcast right now. You have to watch it. It's it's from like I don't know, 2010 maybe. I've been my boyfriend and I watch it for like the past I don't know six or seven years during Christmas. So it's really. I mean, we're gonna get it. It's on the happening. Rotation. I've written it down. It's, it's good. It's happening. It's very cheesy, but like listeners everywhere are thanking you for this. Yeah, yeah. You're very you're welcome, and and also is you know for me such an important show. Uh, current queer icon? Representative Sharice Davids of Kansas. Yeah, I'm clapping right now. Yes, love it. Beautiful. Cody, wow. thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. It feels like you opened the door of your classroom in this podcast and we just walked in. We, we thank you so much for sharing what's in your heart and what's in your work with the students down in Florida. Thank you so much for having me. Beyond the Letters is a production of Heinemann Publishing and the Heinemann Podcast. To learn more about our guest this week, visit blog.heinemann.com.